to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding I invite you to open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 8, where we'll, Darwin is continuing to, to work through Paul's letter to the Romans about the halfway mark or so at this point. So we'll be reading verses 5 through 8. Romans chapter 8, 5 through 8. This is God's Word. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, you have given this word by your Holy Spirit, and it is only by your Spirit that we could ever understand this word, especially that we could ever embrace it and believe it, that we would be moved by it and built up in it, that it would grow our faith and that it would Increase our devotion to you, our praise of you, the giving up of ourselves to you. Lord, we pray, as you are, as we've confessed, exalted to the right hand of God, you're far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We pray in your sovereign power, by that spirit of which you made the world, that you would work in our hearts even now. Oh Lord, we pray with Paul in Ephesians 3, that you would work according to the riches of your glory, according to the unlimited capacity that you have as God. You would strengthen us through your spirit in the inner man, that we, together with all the saints, being rooted and grounded in love for one another by your grace, that we together will understand the height, depth, and length, and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Bless us, Lord with Christ, for we ask it for His glory. Amen. I have a a book of several of these, but one particular book on weight loss, but it's really more of a book on overall fitness, okay? And in the front of the book and in the back of the book are dozens of before and after pictures, right? Flabby, buff, flabby, buff. Flabby buff. Just makes you sick you know, to see it. Me, 
Not me. Me. <laughs> Never me. <laughs> me. Oh. Um, it looks like every one of them has been kind of shrink-wrapped. You know, when you see that, it's just like... And can that ever happen to you? And, of course, the point is, the proof is in the pudding. You know, this here it is. This is what this program will do for you. If you, if you engage in this program, if you follow... Uh, what I set forth, this is what's going to happen. It's also a way to say, hey, this is your life now, but that was your life then. For those people who took the pictures, right? It's a way to say, hey, look how far you've come. And you don't ever want to be there again, do you? You know, Look how you looked. Ugh. You don't ever want to do that again. Uh, that's where you were. That's where you never want to go. Well, one problem for me in this book is the first step. Because after getting the necessary equipment or joining a gym that has the necessary equipment and restocking your pantry and your fridge and everything, the first step is to uh, take about six pictures of yourself as before. Not on my watch. (laughs) No. This world has enough ugly in it, you know. I'm not going to mar humanity with a picture of it. Taken on purpose, you know, <laughs> just here, let me contribute to the ugly. So that's why I'm not going to lose any weight, because I'm not going to take pictures of myself. <laughs> if they hadn't asked me to take the pictures, I might, but I'm not going to now. Uh, no. Well, it's interesting because here in Romans 8, 1 through 4, uh, the, right before the, our passage, he talks about what's happened to us. He talks about how the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from this syndrome of sin and death that we were in. We were mired in this quicksand uh, of sin and death, and the spirit has set us free. And he says it, it really is founded on the work of Christ, who judged and condemned and destroyed death on the cross, uh, so that now, instead of being in this syndrome of life and death, we can be on this pathway in which the law of God, the very requirement of God summarized by loving God and loving your neighbor, that this can be fulfilled in our lives. And in the last phrase there in verse 4, he says, who walk not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. For, verse 5, those who walk according to the flesh. Basically, verses 5 through 8 are looking back at the before picture, okay? He's saying, we, walk, we now walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, for this is what that looked like. This is that life according to the flesh. Then he gets back to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So there's the, the 5 through 9 is kind of a, a side picture as he's talking about how we've been taken out of this condition of sin and death. He says, for this is what that life of the flesh is, but that's not you anymore. So it's a very encouraging in one sense, but it's very tragic as it describes the nature of sin in, in our lives. Uh, so he even talks about how the whole of your life is bound up in it. So when he says uh, in verse uh, 5, if you're according to the flesh, literally it means those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This means that the total of the totality of their inner disposition 
is fixed in one of these directions. Not perfectly, not that you're perfectly obedient or perfectly disobedient, but this is the fundamental orientation. And the radical nature of the change shows itself in how in the flesh, this is the mark of that flesh. This is how it looks. Uh, the absorbing uh, direction of your thoughts and your interests and your affections, your outlook on things, your assumptions about life, your values, your purpose. Or you could look at it, the things that preoccupy you, the ambitions that drive you, the concerns that engross you, how you spend your time and energies, what you concentrate on, what you give yourself up to, as John Stott puts it. All of these things, there's an orientation of the flesh that is consuming. There's an orientation of the spirit that is consuming. There's nothing in the middle. Now, it doesn't mean that people in the spirit don't struggle. Uh, they're not saying that, but they're saying there is this orientation out of which you've been taken. The flesh totally determines the life before. And so we're going to look some at what this means to be in the flesh and... Hopefully, by doing so, we're going to say, hey, this is what you were. This is what you don't want to ever be again. This is what you were. This is not where you want to be ever again. And the encouragement of what God is doing to make us to be those who are of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Well, how can we summarize what the flesh is? Uh, First of all, we might say that it's me and not God. It's probably the most fundamental thing, and we'll spend a lot of time on that. It's me and not God. It's life, it's death and not life, as he describes it there in verse 6. Thirdly, it's rebellion and not submission. It's rebellion and not submission, or that's fourthly. And then thirdly, I should say, it's hostility and not love, which issues in rebellion and not submission. So, it's me and not God. It's death and not life. It's hostility, not love. It's rebellion, not submission. So let's first look at this me and not God. Uh, Let's look first. Luther's favorite description of fallen nature is this, and it's, it's a very excellent way to describe the flesh. It's deeply curved in on itself. Deeply curved in on itself. When you think of flesh in the first place, you just think of self. You draw a circle around self. That's the most fundamental aspect of flesh. It kind of has that feel, even the name of it, of course. Now, flesh doesn't mean necessarily sexual desire and that kind of thing. It's just it's describing this whole world, this whole orientation that is, by the nature of the fact, apart from God and focused on me. So we're following what we want, who we want. We depend on what we want to depend on, on who we want to depend on. So to be in the flesh, it's self-dictating, okay? self-reliant. I will dictate the, what I will follow. I will rely on what I want to rely on. And flesh necessarily then is declaring our independence from God. We don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to rely on Him. It's just us without God. That's really the essence of it, to be in the flesh. Just us, without God, apart from God, against God, opposed to God, self instead of God. And there's really no other way to live 
if you're not living in the Spirit, but that. It's the only other alternative. Either given up to God, governed by His Spirit, or me. <laughs> That's really it. Barrett says it's to have one's mind set upon existence apart from God. A mind from which God is excluded. Just doesn't factor in. The true God, of course. We'll talk about this in a minute that we'll invite, we'll invent our own gods along the way. Um, you can even look at verse 9 where it says, uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Some have said this almost defines what the flesh is. Uh, those who please, who please themselves and not God. So, egotism is really the essence of our fallenness. We're going to assert ourselves. We're going to be the center of our life. We're going to be our own God. And my enmity against God, which is mentioned later, really stems from my commitment to me. That, and when God comes to interfere with that commitment to me by claiming his authority, I can't help but hate that God who gives a lie to my self-assertion. I'm going to be against this God when I want to assert myself and say, I'm going to call the shots. And so this enmity flows away, flows from my commitment to myself. I think that I oppose God because He stands in my way. He stands in my way of what I want. But the circle, though we can draw it around self in one sense, and really that defines it all and everything that stems from it, we have to think of it as a big circle, but it's still the flesh. It's still me. As long as we're independent of God, then all that we are and do and all the relationships we have are governed by the flesh. They're carried out in the flesh with all the limitations of the flesh and the self-orientation of the flesh. So that our horizon is just bound by the things of this life. It's the focus of everything. So it can you can increase that circle. Let it include all your relationships. Let it include your work and your play, even your family. Let it include all the gods and idols that mankind have invented it is all included in the flesh. All of it's an extension of our self-assertion, our self-promotion, our self-dependence. Everything apart from God, without reference to God, without regard to God, without submission to God, without honor and allegiance to God, is all the flesh. It's this world of rebellion. Simply not to trust Him is to hate Him, see. Not to acknowledge Him and to let Him be the dependence of every part of your life. That is to hate Him and reject Him. Well, of course, we don't do that perfectly. But to, as a way of life where He doesn't uh, factor in in these, these ways. So even the best things that we do in this life, uh, many things that we do good that are good in relation to other things we could have done. A man being faithful to his wife. But if he does this apart from God, it's still a work of the flesh. It's not done in relationship to God. It's not done in trust to God. It's not done in honor to God or recognition to God. It's not done in relationship to God's mercy in regard to Christ. 
a man who works hard at work, or he's generous and gracious with siblings at the announcement of an inheritance, you know, and all these good things that we do. But if they're carried out minus God, they're of the flesh. It's, it's simply self-working in one way or another. Bernard of Clairvaux said this, So far from being able to answer for my sins, I cannot even answer for my righteousness. I can't answer for my sins, but then when I bring my righteousness and I really look at it, I think, oh no, I can't even answer for that. I don't know, let me hide that. You know, as Paul said in Philippians 3, he says, those things that I thought were gain to me, I realize, whoa, I thought those were on the plus side of the debit, but those are on the minus side. I'd like to put those behind me. I remember a movie in which this fella had uh, been divorced from his wife and had been uh, taken away from his child and his wife had married some rich dude and uh, he had been at a fair all day. He was at the time alcoholic, struggling with alcohol and he had won a teddy bear and he thought he would give it to his child when he saw him. And uh, when he met the wife and the new husband, he had his teddy bear in the hand in, in his car uh, the the kid brings his new saddle over, like a saddle that costs thousands of dollars that the rich father had, had bought. And he just took the teddy bear and put it out the window, you know. <laughs> Didn't want to compare that teddy bear to the, the saddle. And that's how we are when we really realize what is required of, of God, what, what love really is and how far from love I am of God and others, and we even our righteousness, we realize it's a part of the flesh. And Tim Keller in his wonderful book on the prodigal God, this book is about uh, Luke 15 and the what we call the parable of the prodigal son. And most of you are familiar with that, where the son uh, wants the inheritance from his father and he leaves and wastes everything. And then in his loss and pain, and helplessness and starvation, he returns to the Father. We remember that glorious picture of the Father running down the road, uh, just unabashedly in really uh, humiliation because a grown older man running down the road, pull, road, pulling up his robes was just, he just didn't do that. And so he disgraced himself out of his passion and love for his son who had come home and embraced him. And he put his own robe on him. His, the finest robe was his robe. He gave him the honor of himself, put, him, put his own office as a covering uh, over him and brought him in and, and started the party. And, uh, but the, the story really, as much as we focus on that, the story really is about the older brother. Because it's, it's said to Pharisees, it says. There were Pharisees that were judging Jesus for being with uh, lost people, with the uh, tax gatherers and the like. And so uh, he tells this parable, and the whole point of it is to finally get to the, younger bro- the older brother who won't come into the party. That's the Pharisee. That's who's writing this. The whole thing, oh, the whole thing about the younger brother is to get to the older brother and to show that you can be alienated from God either by breaking the rules or you can be alienated from God by keeping the rules. That's how far the flesh can show itself. That's how deceitful the flesh is. Deceitful this world of sin and self is for us. So that... You can 
careful obedience to God's law can be a strategy for rebelling against him. The, the elder brother didn't come into the feast. He didn't join with his father. He didn't share his father's heart. He, the father's joy over the restored brother, he didn't share that joy. He didn't love his brother. He didn't love his father. But he kept the rules. That was such an indictment over the Jews themselves who, quote, were keeping the rules, but when God appeared to them in Christ and showed forth His mercy in Christ, they hated it because they really didn't love God. And that can happen to us. That's the influence of the flesh. He quotes from Flannery O'Connor's book, Wise Blood, the character Hazel Motes. And he says this, There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Isn't that interesting? Because then you don't have to have Jesus as your Savior. He can be your friend. He can be your helper. He can be your example. He can be your inspiration. He can be all these things. But you keep him at arm's length. He won't have to be your Savior. You won't have to be helpless. You won't have to be joined to him. You won't have to be like him. Does somebody committed to self want to follow somebody that's not committed to self? No. That's no fun. I'd like to have a a God who's all focused on himself so if I can get close to him, I can focus on myself right along with him. But here comes a God who spins himself for other people. I don't want that. I don't want to spin myself for other people. I don't want to keep the rules. I want to... Get God control over God. I want to manipulate God. I want God and I to do a deal here where if I do these things, he's going to give me a good life. He's going to make things turn out good for me. And that's why so many people in the church, when things turn out bad, they get so angry at God. Many turn away from God because they're not in it for God. They're not obeying to have more of him and do whatever you want to me, God. I don't care. I just want you But that obedience is really the flesh all along. All along, it was for self-promotion. All along, it was trying to manipulate God. All along, I wanted the stuff God could give me, but I didn't want Him. Kind of put it bluntly, I wanted God to put out for me. I wanted God to do something for me. I didn't want Him. I wanted God to prostitute Himself. That's what I wanted. But he wouldn't do it. So the flesh, you see, though you can draw this circle right around you and say, that's what the flesh is. It's me asserting myself. It's me wanting to live only my life the way I want it. Even the motivation for doing things, even the motivation for having a good family could be all about me with no regard to God. No regard to God. So we can use outward obedience as a shield to shut our door, the door of our hearts. We can do it to shut the door to our sins and our past and our desires and our fears. And we throw away the key and we just keep saying, hey, I go to church. I do all the right things. We can call ourselves religious while we are abusive to our own mates physically or verbally or through severe emotional neglect. And when confronted, we won't even face it because we're really not obeying God. We're really a function of the flesh. We're a function of self. We're all out to affirm ourselves. Now, 
it's easy to see then that this life of self, this life of flesh, as he says in verse 5, the, or verse 6, the one who is set on the flesh, this mind of the flesh is death. It means, of course, ultimately it lands you in eternal death, but it's saying that this is, this is the very nature of the case. This is what it is. This mind is death itself. Because death is estrangement from God, scripturally. Death is always considered, if you're alienated from God, if you're separated from God, you are dead. And so to be bound by the flesh and to be bound by self is, is a life of death. It is the most terrible small box to be living in, living for myself. And I've cut myself off from what is life indeed. As Jesus says, this is life to know uh, God and the one whom he has sent. This is life. It's, this is, he even uses the word, this is eternal life. We tend to think eternal life means by nature that it's forever. But that's not the point of eternal life. Eternal life is relational. Eternal life means that I'm, I have communion with God. I'm in fellowship with God. That is life. That communion is the apex of life. It's the apex of religion. But a flesh-dominated life is not out for God and for communion with God. It's not out to depend upon God's mercy. This is the hallmark of the mindset of the flesh. It's the condition that we're in of death, and it dictates our final destiny. And there's kind of an implication here that it really won't be seen for what it is and people in it won't even see it for what it is until that final death falls upon them. And then the awful reality. This is what it was all along. And now it's what it issues in for eternity, in eternal judgment and death. So it's death whether people recognize it or not, but it will land them in the most awful, poignant, palpable, tangible death uh, for eternity of judgment. Well, so the flesh is, is, is self, not God. Therefore, it's death and not life. It has to be death and not life. And that's the further point he makes. The big because in this passage is in verse 7. When he says, to set the mind on the flesh is death because the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile. Okay? That's why it is death, because the mind on the flesh is, is hostile to God. Um, as I've said, we can't be anything but hostile to God if He opposes our self-assertion and if He is the God who uh, is giving Himself away. We don't want that. You remember in chapter 5, verse 10, he talks about we were enemies. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And here, it's even uh, perhaps more graphic to say the mind on the flesh is hostile, is enmity itself. There is a resident hostility, a resident hatred, Paul says, that we have toward God. And you may think, well... I don't just hate God. I don't get up in the morning and just, you know, walk around just seething in my hatred against God. But the point is what we've been saying. You could just neglect God. Just don't trust God. Just don't depend upon God. Just don't 
open yourself up to him in prayer. Just don't open up the word for, uh, to depend upon it for life. And you've rejected God. It's death because we're running counter to the whole purpose of creation. God values his own glory as that which is supreme in the universe. See, the enjoyment of his glory, the delight in the, and admiration of God, uh, gratitude, you know, joy in him. This is the whole point of creation, the whole point of making the world, the whole point of making us is so that we might be bound up in that happiness. That's our chief problem from Romans 1. We're not happy in God. We don't enjoy and we don't delight in him by nature. That's the part of the flesh. It's not just that we don't obey, but we don't trust and we don't delight. We don't relish Him. We like a lot of other things, but not God Himself. So if you're a middle executive, say, in a car company that has completely dedicated itself to attempt to achieve freedom from fossil fuels, okay? Absolute freedom from fossil fuels. Uh, through first uh, hybrids and then eventually completely electric cars and they've got a hydrogen thing going on, you know, to create a hydrogen driven car. And, and uh, you, though, are committed to build big gas guzzlers. That's your whole point. That's what you're about. And you're going to do it. And you attack and oppose the purpose of the company every way you can. You undermine its purpose. Well, you know your history in that company. You're not going to fit. You're not going to be there. You're at enmity against everything that this company stands for. You see, God, He lifts and sets forth His glory and His authority and His lordship above everything else. And if we don't prize that, if we don't delight in it, not perfectly, but if this doesn't begin to be the fundamental part of our life, our heart reveals its enmity. That, that's been one of the hardest things for me to face about myself is, you know, when I was coming to faith in Christ. And then, of course, the fact that you're not ever perfect and you still face that continuing struggle. That I could, I could have such a distaste for God. Shocking that I would have had such a distaste for God. And that I could still... Suffer that, you know, still experience that, still struggle against it. But that's what Paul says. The mind on the flesh is enmity to God. And so, Bruner says this, in withdrawing from God, I eliminate him so far as I'm concerned. I eliminate him. I'm hostile to him. So the essence of sin, of course, is to be against God. It's the contradiction of God. The ruling principle is this enmity. And so, what, again, what determines flesh or spirit is our relationship to God, right? Our regard to God, where we are. I love this statement. To make self-satisfaction the highest priority is to reject the self-giving God. To make self-satisfaction the highest priority is to reject the self-giving God. We are hostile to a God like that. And of course, it shows itself 
We've seen that it's uh, it's self and not God, and therefore it's life and not death because it's hostility and not love. But that shows itself in rebellion, not submission. He says the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Our hostility to God or our lack of submission to His law is an index of our hostility. So our lack of obedience is always personal in Scripture. It's not just words on a page. It's God. Okay, It is Him. It's personal dealings with, with God. And so my attitude toward His Word and toward His authority is an index of my relation to God. And it shows that my regard to the Word has really ultimate consequences because He describes it in terms of hostility. The, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to His law. That shows its hostility. God's authority come when, comes when His character shows forth itself, when His, His loving, gracious giving of us, uh, of, of His commands and authority, and, and we turn away from it, we, we show Him how we regard Him. And so, as many have said, for, for the Jews of that time, this outward obedience or this dependence on their national uh, prerogative uh, was all a veil to their hostility to God. So that there can be an obedience to the law outwardly that really prevents real obedience to the law, which is a brokenness and a submission and a helplessness and a dependence upon God's Spirit. And so, apart from the Spirit, there is no neutrality, right? We will be opposed to God. And is, it's interesting here that the law of God is still a standard. As much as he talks about not being under the law, but under the Spirit, under the law doesn't mean that we have... that that we're not under the law in the sense that we don't follow it, we don't obey it, it, it at least in terms of its essential uh, setting forth of the demands of love um, as they're lined out, as Paul says in Romans 13, obeying your parents and you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal and lie and covet. He says, these are all expressions of love. This is how he spells out love in his law. And so... To be not under the law, but under the Spirit or in the Spirit means that now in the Spirit, I'm not in this quagmire of disobedience and sin and death. Because as he says here, by nature, the man set in the flesh, he doesn't submit to God. He can't. He won't. Theologically, this is described as total depravity, total inability. Our depravity doesn't mean that people are as evil as they can possibly be, that they commit every possible sin. It doesn't deny that there's some knowledge of good and that, as I said before, they do some good things instead of other worse things. But it means that every person person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip and power of sin. It extends to every single part of their lives and there's no escape from it except for God's grace. By nature, we're innately hostile to God, and that will not change unless God changes it.
That's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to realize I'm really lost. And I'm really helpless. I have to be saved. Now, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, there are those people who've ruined their lives in different ways, but I hadn't ruined my life. You know, I went to school, I went to college, and I'm holding down a job, and I have a family. You know, I'm not like this or that person. We like to think that we're saved in a different way, maybe. But this passage says, this is who you are by nature, and there's no escape from it. There is no pleasing God apart from His Spirit. But the good news is, God knows this about you. You'd think that God would say all this and say, you know, by the way, as I've been talking about this, let's just forget it. You know, hostile, turned away from me. You're all focused on yourself. You deny the very God that made you, that gives you life and gives you breath to deny me. Forget it. You know, but that's not the point. Right? In this very chapter, chapter 8, God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. Seeing the radical nature of our hostility and our hatred, as he says in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies. Even though you're hostile by nature, God comes to you and says, I'll change your heart. I will invade the fortress with my spirit. I will renew you. I will create in you a heart that does want to please me. I love that great uh, benediction, really a praise of God, a scripture of praise in Hebrews, to the one who who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So we can always helplessly come before him and say, Oh Lord, I must have the forgiveness of Christ. I must have his death to cover me for the hostility that I've had against you and the continuing hostility for I never will be completely without it until you make me perfect. And so I must stand under the righteousness of Christ. I must stand under the forgiveness of Christ that he bore the sin of my hostility. Can you imagine Dying in the place of those who hate you? Dying and paying the penalty for our hatred against Him? Will He stop at nothing? (laughs) No. He really, really wants to rescue us and to fix us out of this death of self into the life of those who from the heart, maybe not perfectly, but sincerely, want to please God. That's what he wants for our benefit because for to, to please him, to be in the spirit is life and peace. It's shalom. It's richness. It's putting yourself back together again. And that's what God offers to each one of you right now. And I love that passage. A little bit different language, but it says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says this, The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died so that you would be set free from living for yourself and you would be released and liberated to live for Christ. That's his salvation. Will you trust him even today? Let us pray. Oh, Lord.
We thank you for this sketch, a terrible sketch of man in the flesh. This is us, Lord, by nature. And by your grace, in its full and terrible way of life, it is a before picture for us because you have redeemed us. And now we're beginning to see at least some of the effects of the work of your Spirit. There is some spiritual strength that is beginning to be built into our lives. A sacrificial love, a delight in you, a, a joy in your salvation. Giving up of ourselves to your will. And it grows, Lord, by your grace. All the more, Lord... In seeing this, may we trust you, may we delight in you, may we see what the essence of our life is and must be to give ourselves up to your gracious authority and to set ourselves free from the destruction of self. Bless us, Lord. Set us free from enmity. Set us free from our rebellion. Oh, Lord, make our hearts fixed upon you to love you, not for what we can get from you, not to manipulate you or to control you, to get leverage with you. But, oh Lord, because we love you, because you have saved us, because you have forgiven us in Christ, may Christ be the focus of our lives. Bless us, for we trust in you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away